Thank you, everyone who is joining us for tonight's event of the Labour Assembly Against Austerity and Arise Festival on the cost of greed crisis, causes and escape routes, which hundreds of you have registered in advance for, and it's great to see people joining us now. Um, we're delighted to be joined today by two people. One is Grace Brakeley, economist and author of Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization, plus a John McDonnell MP, former shadow Chancellor, for what will hopefully be an in-depth discussion for the next hour or so on the deep economic crisis and the socialist response to it. Um, John has just been speaking in the House of Commons Chamber and has kindly joined us now, and um, I will shortly be handing over to him. Before then, just some quick housekeeping announcements whilst the rest of the audience comes in. Firstly, do please let us know where you're tuning in from in the Q&A box. Um, it's always great to see the geographical spread of where people are attending these events from. Secondly, um, do please put your questions on the topic at hand for the discussion in the Q&A box and we'll be taking some of them. And thirdly, um, make sure, of course, that you follow both Arise and the Labour Assembly for updates, including on our exciting events at the upcoming Labour Conference, The World Transformed, and to keep in touch with our YouTubes and podcasts. And finally, please also do take note of the action links provided by volunteers in the chapter out and give Arise a festival of left ideas your support if you can. Ways you can do this include becoming a friend of Arise for just £5 a month, which gives us the regular income we need to continue being the less main and biggest online events platform. Without any further ado, I will now hand over to John, who will then join Grace in conversation. Thank you, everyone, and over to you, John. Uh, thanks, Matt. Uh, before we start, can I just thank all the uh, Matt and all the volunteers around Arise? People have looked, uh, put an awful lot of effort into this and an incredibly successful series of events that they've organised. There's an old friend of mine, no longer with us, Mike Marcuse, used to say, I, I admire people who perform marvellous speeches and can write and all the rest of it, but I only admire them if they do the routine work as well. So routineism, I think, is absolutely critical for what we do. And a lot of routine work goes into these events. Um, and as I say, they've just been a forum in which we can have a proper discussion of the issues that are facing us. OK, what I want to do is um, just talk through with Grace the issues that we're facing at the moment. Recognise we're in a period in where I think most probably in an election campaign already for the next 12 months with a prospect of a Labour government. Um, and I want to talk to Grace about what do we do immediately? What needs to be done immediately? Because we've we've got conflicts coming up over this next 12 months. What are we facing at the moment? Then secondly, what is a Labour government? What's the legacy that the Tories are going to leave us? What's the scale of that and what Labour should be doing? The other thing, Grace, I want to throw in is a discussion about more fundamental change as well, in about financialization in particular. OK, first question is, where have you been? Hi, John. What happened? <laughs> it's lovely to see you again. Um, as some of you may know, as John has pointed out, uh, I I ran away from England for a while. <laughs> I've been writing um, my book, which will be coming out next year. Um, and I decided that it was a good idea to get out of the horrendously expensive and grey London and travel instead to Central America and South America. Um, so I spent about nine months traveling around, um, getting averagely good at Spanish and uh, and finishing my book and obviously meeting lots of great people as well. Um, and getting really into surfing. Hayes. Grace, you could have just come to Hayes. You could have just I could have come, come to Hayes. 
Is there surfing in Hayes, John? I don't think there is. <laughs> Can I just say, before you come in on the book, Matt mentioned stolen, which I thought was fantastic. But there's a couple of other things I want people to put on their reading list as well. Um, Grace edited um, a book called Futures of Socialism. It was, uh, if I remember, Pandemic and Post the Corbyn era. And there's a whole series of articles on that as well. And it follows on. Actually, the first time I came across Grace was when you were writing for Tribune and Left Foot Forward. And yeah. I think you had an apopotus, weren't you, for not going far enough, if I remember right, about round about 16, 17, 2016. I think I do remember that, yeah. Right, she says, I'll vote. I remember exactly. I've got the file on you, mate. It was, I'll, vo I'll still vote for Corbyn, but they're not going far enough. And I thought, yeah, actually, she's most probably right. But she, John, that they, was, I think, one of the first articles that I ever wrote oh, when I, I was still, like, well, work, uh, working for a think tank. That's crazy. It was a good article. But the other book, just I can just plug into people, um, is this one. I don't know where people saw it. It was the Corona crash. Actually, I, I used it. I quoted from it extensively during that period because we were doing the claim the future exercise. Let me just come at you straight away with this question then. What are we facing now? Um, tell us the background to what we're facing now in terms of cost of living crisis, yeah. issues that have stored up. Because what I'm worried about is that for me, because I'm a Labour MP, I want the Labour Party to have the discussion to face up to what they could inherit and what we've got now, because the struggles aren't going to go away for the next 12 months. They're going to be there even more ferociously in some areas. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great place to start because, you know, we're talking about the cost of living crisis now, but it is worth bearing in mind that we are in the midst of what, you know, no lesser capitalist, capitalist institution than the World Economic Forum has called a polycrisis. And this is a term now that is being kind of banded around the upper echelons of, um, you know, global elites, basically the idea that there are uh, a series of overlapping crises um, that have basically been brewing for quite some time and have really emerged and taken hold in the 10 years since the financial crisis. So those range from everything to, yes, the inflationary crisis and the cost of living crisis, but also obviously um, the climate crisis. And again, the climate crisis not just being reduced to global warming, but also things like um, pollinator decline, the breakdown of the nitrogen cycle, um, the, um, you know, uh, potential onsets of lots, lots of extreme weather events. Um, it's, you know, uh, the seventh, the sixth mass extinction, sorry, a whole host of kind of ecological crises that are taking place at the same time. We also have um, a number of different crises linked to both that, that inflationary crisis and the ecological crisis um, to do with production. So we've seen a long term um, stagnation in productivity and productivity is really supposed to be the engine of capitalist growth over the long term. If you're not having a more productive economy, you're not able to produce more things with the same amount of inputs, same amount of resources. And that is really what's supposed to be the foundation of growth over the long term. So there is this problem around where is future growth going to come from? Um, there's also uh, significant problems around inequality. Um, whether that's income or wealth inequality or indeed racial, gender, et cetera, gender inequalities. And those inequalities, not just within countries, but also the massive ones that exist between countries and which became really, really severe during the pandemic when you saw the re-emergence of a, another significant debt crisis, arguably in terms of the scale of capital flight that we saw out of poor countries during the pandemic. This is a bigger debt crisis than even what we saw in the 1980s. And that still hasn't really been dealt with. It still hasn't been grappled with. So there's lots of poor countries that are basically unable to repay their debts. And overlaid on top of all of that, we have this kind of deep um, economic and financial fragility 
that exists at the level of the world economy um, and really stems from, I guess, the kind of the the way that we try to tackle all of these problems together, which is basically throwing debt after the problem. Um, so whether we're talking about, you know, the climate crisis and um, the debts that are being accrued um, by, you know, corporations that basically have unsustainable business models by states that are going to need to spend lots of money mitigating the impact of climate breakdown. Um, or, you know, by, let's say, you know, insurance companies that are going to have unpayable payouts as a result of um, potential kind of uh, extreme weather events and, and economic catastrophes. Or if we just look at the way in which um, we've kind of papered over the slow rates of growth and the, the kind of rising income inequality with high levels of debt and also, crucially, with rising asset prices that have been fueled by capitalist states, basically pumping money into our financial system, again, to kind of cover over the cracks of all of these crises that are bubbling away underneath the surface. So we really have in the economic realm, just this huge array of crises that all kind of feed into one another and all quite interlinked. And then alongside that, unsurprisingly, we have a political crisis. We have a a kind of, you know, political crisis almost on a global scale, which relates to just the declining legitimacy of many states based on the very obvious realization many people have had that the banks got bailed out, normal people have been sold out. That was obviously the the mantra we had after the financial crisis of 2008 has become much clearer since then with austerity that was pursued, yes, in the UK, but also in Europe and many other countries. And also with the, the way that the response to the pandemic was clearly aligned in favour of big businesses um, and against working people and the same with the cost of living crisis. So there is this sense, I think, for most people that the state doesn't really work for you. Politicians don't really work for you. You can't trust um, what is happening in the kind of the halls of power. I think that's where a lot of the kind of modern conspiracy theories come from, which actually identify this problem, which is that there's an unaccountable elite, but don't really place that in the context of this wider analysis of capitalism. Um, which is why you get kind of, you know, the Russell Brands of this world saying everything is a conspiracy. Let's burn down the system rather than actually understanding the way that these dynamics are rooted in the particular challenges that we see in, in capitalist economies today. And I think all of these issues are coming to the fore through the cost of living crisis, because this is a crisis, yes, of inflation that comes from, you know, rising energy prices the recovery from the pandemic but it's also a longer term crisis based on the fact that you know it's costing more to produce the things that we rely on and to import them um, because of the climate crisis it's a, a long-term crisis of the fact that you know we often look at inflation as this kind of thing that's pushed on uh, pushed by demand so there's kind of too much money not chasing enough stuff but actually there's also this issue of what we call the supply side which is basically we haven't had very much sustainable investment in you know infrastructure and production which means that we have created the kind of underlying conditions that lead to inflation because of this long-term problem around productivity and obviously you know the big uh, issue that is being brought to the fore through the cost of living crisis is the issue of inequality it's the fact that you know there there have been throughout the, the course of the cost of living crisis so far a number of massive international corporations that have made huge profits, you know, record-breaking profits, profits off the scale um, in terms of what we've seen in recent decades. Whilst there have been, you know, thousands of people pushed out onto the streets, millions of people who lost their jobs, who've seen their incomes decline, who are now dealing with rising interest rates, having to pay much more to, to service their debts, which have increased because of 
the long-term stagnation in wages that we've seen since the financial crisis. So there's just this astonishingly unequal response to uh, these challenges, which are kind of really being pushed to the fore during the cost of living crisis. And I think what that shows us is that, you know, the cost of living crisis is political, inflation is political, and the response to it is going to be influenced just as much by this question of the balance of power between workers and bosses, between labour and capital, with the state as an important player in that as well, as it is by economists in central banks making technocratic choices about interest rates. Let's just come, can I come back to you on this issue of the state? You refer in, in your, I think it's the, the book on post-COVID crisis to the capitalism losing momentum overall. It's a bit like Michael Roberts's analysis. He takes a straightforward Marxist line, declining rate of, of profit, and, that, and that's the cause of it. In your work, a bit like Michael as well, you basically say capitalism's losing momentum, have lost momentum, but it's the state yet again bathing it out at the cost of ordinary working people. And that's been the trend all the way through. But what's interesting in the discussions that you have with regard in the media mainstream, that's disguised, isn't it? There's, there's no acceptance that actually um, is the, the line we've been using, isn't it, really? The, the, the profits are privatised, but the losses are socialised. And that's what's happened since the banking crash 2007. Actually, it's happened continuously within capitalism anyway in its history. But the state now plays such a significant role, partly because of the issues you're raising as well, because the, the, the scale of debt. That does then lead into the discussion about the politics and the relationship to the state itself and how that's controlled. I know you, in one of the, uh, actually it's in the Economics of the Many, I think, that you did a chapter yeah, yeah. on the local state, didn't you, about yeah. the, 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 the devolution and how the local state could operate to sort of regain some democratic control of the local state. The issue now is the democratic control of the national state and the role it plays and international bodies. What's your view on the steps towards that? John, I'm very glad that you asked me this question because this is precisely what my next book is about. (laughs) So my next book, Vulture (laughs) Capitalism, which is coming out in March. My basic argument is that we've been sold this lie that uh, by you know le- neoliberal policymakers and economists that they fight on the side of free markets um, against state intervention and therefore for a, for a particular vision of human freedom. And also on the left, we kind of get sucked into this and we say, oh, well, it's all very well having free markets, but that doesn't actually guarantee these other forms of freedom that we'd also like to protect. And, you know, it gives us too much inequality. And we really kind of accept the neoliberal line on their own terms. Whereas the book that I'm, I've, I've just finished writing looks at the ways in which that um, free market economies, allegedly free market economies, capitalist economies, um, which claim to be governed along the lines of, of free market principles, are actually disguising a huge amount of centralised planning. Um, and so we don't have this clean cut distinction between uh, centrally planned socialist societies and free market capitalist societies. Actually, the capitalist societies that do exist are based on this careful mixture between centralised power and control and um, you know free market competition. Um, and the balance is uh, is shifts uh, depending on kind of the different regimes that you see. And you know the argument that I have in that book is that the concentration and the centralization of power that we see within capitalism is actually inimical to freedom in all its forms and really undermines the arguments of, of neoliberals that they want to see free markets and a smaller state. Actually, the state, if anything, in a lot of ways has expanded 
uh, under under uh, neoliberal rule mm. over the last 40 or so years. Um, but the crucial thing is that the kind of state intervention that we see is highly depoliticized and often disguised and rendered invisible. So the neoliberal dream, when they say they don't want a state, they don't mean that they don't want state intervention because they do want state intervention. They want states to intervene to bail out the banks. They want states to create the kind of legal system that privileges certain people over others. They want certain kinds of regulation, particularly in the finance sector, because the finance sector needs regulation so that investors have enough confidence to put their money into the finance sector. They certainly um, want a big police force. They certainly want um, a state that enforces a very ruthless regime of, of borders. They want a state that is capable of crushing the labor movement. They want a state that's capable of jailing protesters. They want a state to do lots of different things. What they don't want is a state that is in any way democratic. They don't want a state that is really representative of the interests of the vast majority of people. Why? Well, that's very obvious. You know, capital is at a numerical disadvantage when it comes to democracy. There are many more people that would benefit from um, a complete transformation in the nature of the status quo than there are who would benefit from uh, things continuing as they are. So the way that, you know, the neoliberals have kind of squared this circle when it comes to democracy and capitalism is by depoliticizing the state, um, is by basically using this like neutral technocratic discourse of economics to basically say, Everything that the central bank say is doing is um, it just abides by the laws of economics. So it doesn't need to be a political question. You know, wh whether or not interest rates go up or down, that isn't something that needs to be subject to democratic deliberation. Whether or not we bail out the banks, that isn't ne something that needs to be subject to democratic deliberation. We've decided as the you know technocratic experts in charge of these institutions that this is what is going to be best for the future of capitalism. And we know that because of economics. You don't understand economics. Here's some words that just justify and legitimize the things that I already want to do. And there you go. You, you've kind of done this coup where these massive interventions are basically removed from democratic debate whatsoever. Um, and I think, you know, that is it tells us something really important about the nature of capitalism. Because I kind of mentioned and as I, I write about quite extensively in this book that I have coming out next year, you know, we have this idea that capitalism and free markets are the same thing. And that um, if you want more capitalism, you should have less state. Or if you want, you know, um, uh, more socialism, you should have more state and less market. So, you know, more regulation or, or more state spending. Actually, we have to look at all of the institutions that exist within capitalist societies as um, reflecting the dominance of capital. Now, what does that mean? Uh, I think it's really important to go into what that means, because um, capitalism is not just a, a kind of economic system. It doesn't just mean um, you know, private ownership of the means of production, say. It's also a political system. It's a political economic system based on the dominance of capitalists. In the same way that, you know, feudalism is a political economic system where land is the main commodity and politics is based on the dominance of a feudal aristocracy. Capitalism is this system where, you know, wealth is expressed in terms of commodities and commodity production is central to the operation of, of, of the economy. And crucially also, politics is is um, uh, kind of constantly tilted in favour of the interests of capital. Mm -hmm. And crucially as well, politics isn't just something that takes place within the state or formal state institutions. The state is quite big. 
So, um, you know, you can you have lots of Marxist definitions of the state that include, yes, the executive and the legislature and parliament, but also the police, educational institutions, um, you know, all these kind of outsourcing bodies, these like quasi public bodies that now run huge swathes of our society and also corporations. Corporations aren't just economic institutions, they're political institutions that exist to kind of consolidate the dominance of capital over labor, of of bosses over workers. So we have this kind of more political understanding of what capitalism is. You start to see, oh, wait, most of what the state does exists to kind of serve the interests of big business or big finance. Most of the interventions that are undertaken within the state serve this elite. Now, what's also interesting is that, you know, in the same way that everything that takes place within uh, the workplace or within the firm, there is obviously a bias towards bosses, but workers have power too. They can push, they can change things, they can argue for higher wages, they can push back and demand, um, you know, different forms of, uh, of, of protections. The state is a similar sort of thing. It's not a fixed set of institutions where only capitalists have control. Of course it's not. We know that there's been the NHS, the welfare state, all of these victories that have been won by workers from within the state, because the state is this social relation. It's a social relationship that reflects wider questions around the balance of power. So whilst most of the time, most of the things that the state does supports the interests of capital, when there are these big crises, um, when you know you have crises of legitimacy, when people start questioning whether or not the system works for them, when workers start organising, when people start protesting, you can get concessions out of the state as, uh, as a labour movement. And we've seen that many, many times um, throughout the, the history of particularly social democratic capitalism. So any of these questions that we're asking about the role of the state versus the role of the market, about, you know, about economic policy, about democracy, all of these questions hinge not on are we doing things according to free markets or are we getting the state to decide? It's about the balance of power. It's about who whose interests are being represented in the institutions where decisions are being made, whether that's in, you know, shareholder meetings in a big corporation or in cabinet meetings in the British states. And I think that has become really clear in the moment that we're in right now, um, where you see workers organising, yes, to demand wage concessions from um, corporations, but also those workers that are in some ways kind of part of the state because they're working for public sector organisations, taking on this political role of, of obstructing what the government is doing as well. Um, and that is, I think, you know, encouraging and exciting and um, points us towards uh, towards a way forward, which doesn't which kind of gets beyond this sterile debate of more state, less state. In my youth, there was the big debate between Miliband and Nikos Palantzas about the relative Ralph Miliband, should I say, and mm. Palantzas about the relative autonomy of the state. Uh, and then along came Altasar and totally confused everybody, basically. Yeah. for a long period of time. But we then developed, that we were trying to look at a way, pragmatic way forward and develop the ideas around in and against the state. So the state is a, a relationship, not just a set of institutions. If you go within <coughs> the state, you might be able to chisel away at that relationship. And that's the way, I suppose, we, in many ways, we compromise to try and ensure that there was some form of effective strategy on the ground that both involved electoral politics, but actually also involve professional work as well, you know, people yeah. working professionally within the state and changing that relationship itself. That debate around the state just almost went away for a period. It was quite remarkable. So when is your book out, by the way? In March. Excellent. We'll have it to do leads, an event. 
Okay, it leads on. It leads on to the other element of your work, which is from Stolen, which again, others are beginning to, others have taken up and begin to debate and understand a bit more, which is around the whole financialization of our society. Just explain what you mean by that, because we've been having discussions with you know, guys standing about rentier capitalism and all, all the different aspects of that. Different people have been given example after example. But I don't think people realize that your book brought it together in the sense that it demonstrated the permeation of financialization right across not just our economy, but our lives as well. Just go through the ideas that you developed on that. Yeah. Um, before I go into that, I do just want to say very quickly, John, that your point about the state and the, the work that was being done back in the kind of 70s and 80s is really important. And I talk about that a lot in the next book, including the stuff that was going on in the GLC, which you were really mm -hmm. involved in. Um, and things like, you know, um, the Lucas plan and then the people's yeah. plan for the Royal Docks and the movement for um, socially useful production. All these amazing things that were going on within you know, one part of the state that pointed towards a very different relationship, well, as you were just, saying. Just, just to interrupt you, if I can, people need to understand that the reason the GLC was abolished by Thatcher and became such a focal point of opposition by the Tories wasn't about the levels of expenditure or anything yeah. like that. Of course, we were spending money and it wasn't about individual policies. It was the fact that actually it was an example of doing something different in relation to the state and it became such a fundamental challenge it wasn't just us, it was across the country. It was bubbling up in local authorities right the way across the country as well. So they had to do something immediately to clamp down. It was the same, it was the same timing as they had to smash the miners to destroy yeah. to try and destroy the trade union movement. So they saw, my God, you know, they, they thought we'll sort out the unions. My God, this other area of struggle is breaking out. And it might be even more important because it actually is using the very state to transform people's ability to control their own lives. And that's why it became so dangerous, really. Sorry, I interrupt you anyway. No, not at all. It actually links very well, I think, to this next point, because what was happening during that moment in you know, the late 70s and 80s was neoliberal states using their violent and coercive and administrative power to put in place the conditions that would give rise to financialization. And what that really involved, you know, you can look at financialization in a lot of different ways. You can look at it from a kind of purely economic perspective. And I'll talk a bit about that. But it's also important as well to view it as a political project and a way of rebalancing power, again, between workers and bosses, between capital and labor. There's one view of financialization that says it emerges from the dominance of one set, one group of people, financial capitalists, over another group of people, industrial capitalists. So the idea is that banks kind of took over the economy and then ordinary capitalists um, kind of lost out, basically. And actually, what you see um, when you really look into both the data and the politics of financialization is not one section of capital dominating another. It's the transformation of all of capitalism. So it's the way that almost every area of economic activity becomes financialized. Um, so becomes kind of dependent upon debt, dependent upon the movements of kind of investment capital, but also increasingly at a distance from production. Production is the critical thing that's happening that facilitates everything else in the economy. But financialization kind of appears to pull economic activity away from this grounding in production. And in this sense, it, it kind of, again, helps to shift the balance of power between labor and capital um, because it 
kind of covers over that distinction between workers and bosses that had been the source of so much political tension during that time, particularly in the 1970s. And like, what does that mean? Well, you know, in the 1970s, let's say in the 1960s, 70s, you may have been a worker, you may have been part of the union. What was the main thing that was going to determine your living standards? It was largely your wages and also, you know, the extent of public services and, and the stuff that you were able to get and the, the prices that you were paying for those. But a big part of it was wages. How did you get higher wages? You joined a union. The union fought to get wages that were, you know, at least in line with or higher than inflation. Um, and if you needed to, you went on strike to make sure that that happened. It was a collective effort. And as you engage with those processes, you started to see yourself as part of this movement and as part of this kind of group of people called workers who all benefited from this battle with capitalists. But what's today probably an even more significant factor in determining uh, the average person's living standards, even than their wage, is actually debt and assets. Um, and that's been a really successful way of depoliticizing the way that you feel about your own kind of personal economic situation. Because today, rather than say, you know, joining a union to try and demand a wage increase, you'll probably just take out a new credit card. And if you can't do that, um, you know, you will try and, and get money from, uh, you know, other sorts of financial mechanisms. Maybe you take out a payday loan. Maybe you try and sell an asset that you own. Um, maybe you even say, right, I'm going to invest in my own human capital by taking out a loan and going to university so that maybe I can get a better job at the end. It's all highly individualized and it's all mediated by finance, by debt and investment and lending. And, you know, obviously the way in which um, many of the, the wealthiest people today, um, the, the biggest factor affecting their sense of, of, uh, of wealth is the house that they live in which, you know, how's the financialization of housing has been a critical part of that model. So this shift towards financialization across capitalist economies, which took place in the 1980s, was really about kind of concealing that big divide between labor and capital um, <clears throat> and encouraging us all to think as mini capitalists, as kind of individual entrepreneurs who had savings and investments in the stock markets, who had these homes and were able to derive capital gains from them, to see ourselves as kind of human capital and you invest in your own little personal human capital and you derive income from that. And it was really a kind of anti-collectivist project that start, it started with, <clears throat> John, as you mentioned, shutting down these places where collectivism and municipalism was strongest, whether that was the GLC and local government, whether that was the unions, whether that was kind of protest movements, um, you know, the violent power of the state was first used to crush collectivism. And then we had this financialized individualistic model of both the economy and society that was constructed from the kind of wreckage of that model. And what has that looked like? Well, as I said, you know, it's not just about banks doing more things. It's actually about the transformation of all these different areas of economic activity into um, you know, more financialized modes of doing things. So the way I look at it in Stolen is I look at the financialization of all these different areas of economic activity. So the financialization of the corporation, the financialization of the household, of the state, and of course, the growth of, of the finance sector itself. Um, and the kind of, you know, the financialization of finance in the sense of it's not just anymore a question of, of big banks doing things. There's a uh, a whole ecosystem of kind of shadow financial institutions that exists outside of the regulatory orbit of the state. 
I've spoken a bit already about what the financialization of the household looks like. So it's the kind of breakdown of this um, sense of kind of like, you know, working class consciousness, basically, and the replacement of um, collectivism with this idea of, you know, the individual personal balance sheet. So your job as a human capital is to invest in yourself and to invest in assets um, and to, you know, manage your balance sheet. So manage your, the relationship of your assets and liabilities, buy a house, invest in a pension. And, you know, that's all on you. That's your responsibility to manage your balance sheet. And if you do a bad job of that, then, you know, you go bankrupt, basically, much like any business would. And that's your fault. Um, so you lose this appeal to broader collective structures that previously would have allowed you to say, well, actually, no, the reason that I'm kind of I can't afford things is because I'm part of a class that is being systematically oppressed and exploited by our bosses. Instead, it's it's your fault because you didn't save. So that's a, a big part of the financialization of the household. And, you know, I talk a lot in the book about all the different ways that that happened through privatization of pensions, through the privatization of social housing, um, through to, you know, the um, the privatization and financialization of education, all of these different things. Um, uh, yeah. Th- and you can read about that in Stolen. Um, this, the next thing is the financialization of the corporation. And what that looks like is really you know, the kind of standard um, activities that you would usually associate with a bank or a financial institution becoming increasingly common within just your ordinary corporation. So that means that, you know, corporations increasingly, um, you know, viewing their performance in terms of their standing on financial markets. So rather than investing in production, you might actually find it you know, more profitable or rewarding as a CEO to um, cut investment in production and instead distribute lots of money to shareholders so that your share price increases, so that, you know, the value of the shares that you own increase, get yourself a capital gain. You might also develop very close relationships with banks so that you can buy up other corporations, merge with and acquire other corporations. The M&A booms that we've seen since the 1980s have been astonishing and have created just a, a, a group of huge and very, very financialized corporations that have almost a stranglehold over all different kinds of areas of economic life. Um, And increasingly, it's difficult to, you know, tell the difference between some firms and financial institutions. A lot of, you know, consumer-based businesses, you can say, you can get a loan from them. They'll say, buy now, pay later. Um, You, you know, look at the way in which they measure their performance. And it's not anything to do with, you know, the number of people we employ or anything like that. It's share prices, it's dividends payouts, it's, you know, um, all those all those sorts of kind of financial metrics. Um, So, yeah, you've seen the kind of financialization of the corporation as well. And then finally, the financialization of the state. Um, And that really looks like, again, this focus upon the state as a balance of assets and liabilities, making sure that, you know, what kind of pushing the role of the state as an institution that exists to manage the balance of assets and liabilities and increasingly involving private financial institutions in that process. So you get with this, you know, the rise of the outsourcing agenda, private financing initiatives where private um, financial markets are used to um, uh, basically raise money to build, say, a school or a hospital. That process is all managed by the private sector. It costs more. It's much more inefficient. Um, it, as we've seen recently, results in in substandard outcomes, but it allows for the even closer integration between states and financial markets. And on the other side of that, as we've been discussing, it's the massive role 
that's now played by the state in supporting financial markets. Arguably today, after the last 10 years since the financial crisis, central banks, particularly the Federal Reserve, are the most important players in the global financial system. So a huge portion of what goes on in financial markets is just determined by technocrats at the Federal Reserve, at the Bank of Japan, at the ECB, at the Bank of England, um, which is quite astonishing for an allegedly free market economy. So, yeah, you know, financialization weaves its way into all these different areas of economic life. And it doesn't just mean banks doing more stuff or financial institutions being doing more stuff. It's kind of a change in ideology as well as a change in, in economics. So, yes, economically, it involves the rise of financial markets, motives, actors in all these different areas of economic activity. But it also involves a change in the way that we see ourselves, where we see corporations and the way we see the state. And it becomes about how do I manage my balance sheet, my assets and my liabilities? How does the state manage its balance sheet, its assets and liabilities? Um, and how can we all be made to be personally responsible for our individual financial holdings rather than seeing ourselves as part of this collective? It's financialization as you pose it. it. We use the word hegemony all the time, don't we? But actually, it's the best example that there is where everything becomes a commodity and everything relates to a contract or even down to the individual. And the, be uh, the best example of that, to be honest, was when they introduced um, tuition fees and student yes. loans and all the rest of it. You know, and now, even now, I, could do, I do talk to lots of students and the language that, that is conveyed to them is exactly as you say. This is about investing in yourself. That's so you yeah. become a commodity within a system that is, a, is actually quite profitable for some within that system it, it, itself. When, when I'm a shadow chancellor and surrounded by lots of people like yourselves, the, some terrific people, Mary Robertson, Rory McQueen, James Meadway, Max Harris, um, Seb and Corbyn and uh, Sean Arrington, all those people, if you remember, they did that piece of work coming together about alternative forms of ownership. Yeah. Because we saw that as one of the, one of the steps of addressing this issue around the permeation of our society by this financialization right the way through. And it 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 was, of course, it was all about public ownership and a, a development of co-ops, et cetera. But it was the idea was to give a number of examples about how people can regain control as a collective and at the same time realize actually there's value beyond just being a commodity. And it's yeah. interesting that that report, the conference that we had in that report that we prepared. It's interesting how many, um, even in the Parliamentary Labour Party, how many centrists and others actually recognise the importance of that work. Anyway, which moves me on, really, um, because we're running out of time. So I want to put you on the spot now. <laughs> um, you're, you're elected leader of the Labour Party tomorrow morning, OK? Where do we go from here? What do you think? Uh, I'm, as I say, Andrew Fisher was doing some number crunching for me about the scale of the problems that Labour will yeah. face. And, they, and the work we're trying to do at the moment is to try, it's not about challenging people, it's about saying, look, you need to face up to the scale, the immense scale, 13 years of austerity, the challenges that we've got, you know, 14 million in poverty, 5 million mm. children in poverty, all that, ageing population, of course, but an ageing population has still got 2 million pensioners living in poverty. And then, of course, the overall ex existential threat of climate change. Just give me your ideas of what you would do as a core element of a program in taking over control. Prime Minister Grace Brakeley. 
Let's hope it never comes to that. But in this <laughs> in this crazy world, we can dream, Grace. It. We can dream. Go on. <laughs> um, so you know, for me, the the question of what to kind of what to do basically hinges on how we can begin to redress obviously this imbalance of power between capital and labor and how we do that now for me it's all about democratization um, and really kind of thorough democratization of every era of economic activity and and social life and political life um and the reason i say that again is because you know we have this kind of long history on the left of having this debate about um you know let's say the nature of how much state control do you need or the balance between states and markets? And for me, that kind of question is a bit academic. It's a bit less important than who is in charge of those institutions and who is taking decisions. Because even if you have a huge amount of, of state control, basically, over, over the economy, which would you know probably be an improvement at this point on the kind of extractive neoliberalism that we have at the moment, that would still be a form of class rule. And it would likely be you know, the oligarchy that's basically controlled our politics for the last, you know, century, centuries, really. If you look at the backgrounds of the people that are currently in, in power, they're going to be, you know, the first to say we're going to be the ones making the decisions in this new world. Um, so for me, the biggest question is, is how do we democratize everything, democratize the economy, democratize corporations, democratize finance, democratize the state, democratize international institutions and organizations so that you know, the power of ordinary people, the power of organized people can be mobilized to defeat the concentrated and oligarchic power of capital. And there are a number of ways I think we need to do this, some of which are more top down and some of which are more bottom up. And I think you need both. Um, And the reason that you need both is not just because, you know, it's important to have experiments in municipal socialism going on at the same time as, as having, you know, reform at the top level. You need that bottom up stuff because that is the foundation of movement building and of building consciousness, as well as the foundation of of different policy areas. Um, So, you know, when I'm talking about municipal socialism, when I'm talking about the labor movement, it's obviously important in itself that workers have you know, powerful unions that are able to demand wages and increase in line with inflation. It's obviously important in itself that we have powerful local government that can act on behalf of, of working people. But crucially, it's also through participation in those movements that people stop seeing themselves as these individual human capitals whose job it is to balance their, sorry, to manage their balance sheets. And they start seeing themselves as part of this class of people, as part of this movement, who in whose interest it is to see the system really you know, fundamentally transformed. So top-down policies, I talk a lot about in Stolen, anything that you can do to democratise the states, democratise finance. So that looks like everything from democratising central banking. So having kind of, let's say, you know, uh, a number of elected officials um, on central bank policy committees. Um, It involves something like, uh, you know, national investment banking, which John um, proposed in um, the you know several Labour manifestos, which would be really really important, especially if you had a kind of democratic decision making structure mm-hmm. and process going on within that. I also installed and proposed this idea of a people's asset manager, which would be kind of like um, you know let's say you send your money to a pension pot, that pension fund then sends your money to BlackRock, a big asset manager, and they invest it in 
you know, wherever it's going to get the highest returns. I argue that we could have a similar sort of institution that would invest um, democratically in line with socially determined objectives. So we could all say, right, where do we collectively as a society want our pensions money to be invested? Do we want to say build social housing? Do we want to invest in green technology or that sort of thing? Um, and that could be potentially an interesting um, way of democratizing finance. Um, there's lots of other different policy proposals in Stolen, so you can read all, about all of those there. But the other thing I really want to talk about, um, based on what John and I were, were discussing earlier when it came to the GLC, is how we can start doing things right now, even without state power, that both speak to this question about how we democratize society and also start thinking about how we can really build movements that politicize people and encourage them to get involved in politics. Um, and some of those are things like what's going on in Preston, for example, the community wealth building agenda, um, which is happening in local authorities all over the country. Um, and I wrote an article not long ago about a, a small town in Wales called Blyneau for Stineog, where they are doing a, a kind of model of community wealth building, but where it's coming less from local government and more just from ordinary people doing, you know, building cooperatives, building community enterprises um, and building networks between all those different groups to really push for change. Um, I look at participatory budgeting. So how um, in a number of cities around the world, uh, local people are able to kind of basically determine how local budgets are spent and allocated. Um, I look at people's planning initiatives in, in Kerala and in India um uh in you know i mentioned the the london the people's plan for the london docks that was the other option to canary wharf we had this inflection point where you know thatcher was like i want to build canary wharf this yeah. haven for international capital the people's plan for the london docklands was actually saying no we want this as a kind of um you know community-led regeneration space basically that aims at fighting inequality creating good jobs those sorts of things so there are all these amazing examples that are happening right now all around the world of people saying no, basically, to neoliberalism and financialization and capitalism and building different models at the local level. Um, and I'd encourage people to look at, there's loads of different examples of this, um, but there's a website called Participedia that lists loads of different examples of participation in, in politics and economics and all these different decision-making processes. Um, so go on there, have a look at, have a look at, uh, at those examples. Um, and... Um, yeah, also, you know, I, I would really recommend looking up what went on in the GLC when John was involved there. Um, I think there's a good book by Owen Hathley called Red Metropolis that looks at the GLC and the kind of experiments in democratic planning that were taking place at the time. Um, and I really think that kind of starting here, starting at the grassroots, starting by trying to build local experiments in democratic decision making and organising, um, is not only what starts to change the world now, it also starts to build this movement. And I personally, from you know the experience I have of politics so far, I'm convinced that the biggest barrier that we have to change is less the big structures that are keeping things the way they are. And it's more the structures that we hold within ourselves. It's this idea that most of us have that I can't change anything. I can only control myself and my own life. Um, you know, there's uh, the, the only kind of route I have to changing the system is to consume differently. So buy ethical products or vote differently. Actually, I think we really need to move away from this individualistic understanding of politics and towards this collectivist understanding of politics, because it's only as a collective, only as a group um, that we um, 
are able to understand and exercise our power. And when you start seeing yourself, not just as one individual going up against all these massive challenges that we've been talking about today, but actually as part of a movement of people all around the world, united by common interests, um, that you start to see all oh, these problems are solvable. It just requires us to work together. There are examples from the GLC. I, I don't want to reminisce too much, but there are examples from the GLC that, that stand the test of time in terms of success as well. And, and people do forget them. It's worth reminding people the to give them confidence. One of them is Coin Street. I'll yeah. tell you an anecdote on Coin Street. It was the local people... Uh, May rem- some may remember some of them have read about it. Owen covers it, it Owen Healthy does really well in his book. But what happened along the South Bank, all the way, all that South Bank that people now enjoy walking along? It's like being beside the seaside, walking along the Thames, there's families everywhere. Uh, the South Bank, the developers wanted to take over the South Bank effectively, and that was owned by the GLC. And they were lobbying and lobbying for tower block developments effectively. And we, the local people in Corn Street came together and de- developed a local plan. And we backed it. And it was the most extensive discussions around what would go where and what sort of housing it was and how it would be managed. People want to train themselves on the management of different aspects of it. And then Thatcher got wind of what we were doing. We kept on rejecting the plans that were coming from the developers. So she got wind of what we were doing. And they introduced legislation to take control mm-hmm. of our expenditure on the levels of expenditure. But for some reason, which I cannot understand now, there was a, a date set in for the implementation of the legislation rather immediately. So what happened was they we rushed through my finance committee, as I was chair of the finance committee then, we rushed through the decision to hand Coin Street over to the people. Yeah. And, I, it was, and the, to give the bureaucracy in the GRC the due, um, they were very good. Morris Stonefrost, a name from the past. Uh, these are often, uh, Morris Stonefrost himself, working class person from Bristol, a good bureaucrat. He just wanted to do something for, uh, for Londoners. And they got the paperwork through me. And we got it through just before midnight when the decision, the powers nice. were taken office. And I always remember it because there was a clap of thunder. And someone said, well, someone appreciates it anyway. It was amazing. <laughs> And that Coin Street development is still there. There aren't tower blocks there now, and people enjoy that whole development. And it just demonstrates how individual, it's a point you're making, retrieving our situation in terms of retrieving forms of democracy will take place in so many multiple areas, whether it's the trade union, the street, the local authority, or, or whatever, and in, within the company as well, within the negotiator, within a company as well that actually change can be brought about. We need to have confidence in that and refer back to the examples of, of where that's happened. I think the at the moment, obviously, on the left, it's a difficult period after what happened in, 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 in government. We lost the election in 2019, yeah. whatever. Yes, it was a Brexit election, but there's an awful lot for us to learn from that as well. But the one thing I don't want people to do is to stop having the ambition to develop ideas like this to debate ideas, you know, and to make sure that and we are reaching for the sky. These sounds like platitudes, but actually during that period, people, I remember you and others were just coming along and buzzing with ideas and they were throwing them on the table. And we, I can always remember discussions about, do you think this could work? Let's try it anyway. And it worked in the sense of convincing people. What was interesting in some ways in the 2019 election 
Um, all the all the policies we put out in our manifesto, they were polling so well. The problem was putting that all together. We lost credibility because people thought you're never going to be able to do all this. And that was partly we were throwing more out there because we were trying to distract from Brexit as much as we possibly can. Yeah. And also that election came earlier, two years early. So I keep even I said it to Keir Starmer and others. When you're launching a new area like that, new policy, you need 18 months at least to just get the idea out there, rebut the criticisms, explain how it means to the individual and the community, but more importantly, have it developed by those people on the ground, yeah. so they're mobilising. So it's a campaign rather than a policy development, basically, on that sort of thing. Basically. And I think it's, it's a matter of making sure that happens. In the coming period, we're going to have five minutes left of this discussion, and Matt will pull the plug, but the... In this coming period, there's a general election next year in the autumn, something like that. Um, the Labour manifesto, um, I think, will will be relatively short, won't be detailed. I think it'll be more narrative than uh, detailed commitments. We've seen the National Policy Forum papers, and I, we've seen some areas in there which are um, where Labour has backed off from some of the commitments that we had in, in, in the past. So my view is that... Uh, that actually puts an onus back on all our shoulders now that we've got to create that climate of opinion where whoever's in government in after the next election, it'll be a Labour government, but whoever's in different ministerial positions cannot ignore the ideas. And I also think this, that in any government in the past, the key period is actually not before the election. It's not necessarily manifesto construction. It's when you're in government and you're faced with the real world and this Labour going to government will be faced with a real world with a huge challenges. And I don't think the policies they're advocating at the moment will be able to meet those challenges. And on that basis, there's an opportunity then, in particularly at the end of that first year, I think, where there will be a debate about where does it go from here. And that's why the sort of ideas that you and others have been developing, I think it's so important that we keep them fresh in people's minds and developing them on. And as you say, taking them into individual specific examples of what can be done and campaigning around them. So the work that you've done, I just want to say thanks, Grace, for all that you've done. There's a map on your wall, which is really worrying. So I'm just saying to you, do not disappear again for any period of time. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not okay John. That. I mean... I can't make any promises, but I promise not to go away for such a long time again. <laughs> exactly, because exactly, we need you, OK? And we'll need you in this coming period. This next couple of years are going to be absolutely key. Potential of a Labour government, which I think we'll get. Not yeah. sure what majority we'll have. But that key period after the election is when immense, immense challenges faced by a Labour government is when the debate will really be on. And it's when we'll be campaigning as well to ensure that those ideas are taken up by a Labour government. And issues around cost of living, people's wages, mm. the rundown of our public services, none of those will have gone away by then. In fact, they'll be exacerbated by another year Tory government. That's the whole point. The big issue you've you raised as well, in terms of climate change, we've got to get really serious. The, the debate now has to really go to another level about just how, how critical a situation that we're in, how radical the policies that we need. And I think, again, it's one of those areas that a Labour government will have to address when they're in power. Otherwise, we could be in a situation where people, they fail, they get people get radically disillusioned, and then it's not to the right, it'll be to the far right that goes. So in some instances, this is about making sure that we create a political climate where Labour could succeed 
that could succeed only on the basis of proper analysis and the policies themselves. Grace, it's been really good talking to you. Okay. Can I again? John, thank you. Thank you so much for hosting. And also, thank you so much for everything that you do and have been doing for such a long time. And I hope will continue to do for a very, very long time to come. Well, I don't do it out of any commitment. I just enjoy myself. I can tell. And I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks for everyone. We've had a large number of participants in this as well uh, and whatever. Lots of different issues that people raise that will take back. Thanks again to Matt and all the volunteers at Arise, okay, for organising this tonight. And hope to see you all soon. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.